0: You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, Hawaii Talks. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, this morning we talked to Governor David Ige about the decision to tighten up the pre-test Safe Travels program, following calls by some mayors to do more since so many COVID hotspots are spreading across the country. The tweak involves making sure travelers have their negative results in hand. Otherwise, they risk being put in quarantine.
1: You know, we are seeing surges all across the country, and Hawaii does have the safest, most robust pre-travel testing program in the country. Since we launched the program on October 15th, you know, we've welcomed more than 270,000 travelers, and just under 80% of those coming in are uh, pre-tested and tested negative. So, you know, I think that that's an important part. But we do know that the holidays and Thanksgiving holidays, the busiest travel day, and clearly with the number of cases uh, surging across the country, we thought it would be important. You know, we have seen since the program was initiated, people coming to Hawaii and um, not have their um, test results prior, Uh, and then um, they end up testing, receiving results in transit. And they're positive or testing positive after arriving in the islands. And so we want to make sure that we can continue to have our residents be safe and healthy here in the islands. We also note that 94% of those coming are able to get their test uh, ahead of time. So, you know, we're talking about a relatively small uh, percentage of those, but we thought that this added measure, especially as the virus is. Uh, raging across the country would be appropriate.
0: I can see how this could then put a lot of burden then on our folks to contract trace everybody on the airplane.
1: Yes, I mean there're protocols about doing that, but you know it's hard because they may not be totally truthful with us, but in several instances, uh, it seems like they were aware and they did actually receive their results prior to boarding, and they really did not disclose that. So it's, you know, it was a combination of a a lot of different things. The fact that when you think about it, there would be motivation for some to hide the fact that they're positive uh, and get on an airplane. So, you know, this change in policy, like I said, for the most part, 94 percent of those traveling are able to get their test results prior to departure. We're talking about impacting just a small percentage of people and within that small percentage we have had instances where we believe that they knew that they were positive but they boarded the air- airplane anyway.
0: And so this is for residents and non-residents?
1: Yes it would apply to everyone traveling and participating in the pre-travel testing program.
0: So whether it's Hawaii residents going to Vegas for Thanksgiving, which we know is a popular thing to do around the holidays, they've got to have their results in hand before they board.
1: Uh, Yes. Well, when they're coming back, right? I mean, Nevada doesn't have a pre-travel testing program. So, you know, they definitely would uh, have to have their results in hand prior on their return or they, you know, would be in quarantine. I don't think it's a real big change. I do believe it's an important change because of uh, what we've seen.
0: There's not been agreement with the mayors from the different counties. You know, some want more stringent uh, post-testing. Mayor Kawakami is in support of that. Mayor Caldwell has expressed, you know, some concerns about, you know, whether we're doing enough.
1: So how do you respond? You know, I think we would all love to see more testing, Catherine. You know, the challenge is that uh, in the state of Hawaii, we have a capacity to complete about five to 6,000 tests per day on a sustained basis. Clearly, if we had a a post-travel, post-arrival testing program, we would exceed the tests that are available. And so, you know, that's the challenge and that's the dilemma. It's about balancing and ensuring, you know, for me, my priority is ensuring that our residents who need to get tested, so those who become symptomatic, or those who have been exposed to someone who is COVID positive, they need to be able to get the test when they need it. And we are testing between three and 4,000 uh, residents uh, a day in those kinds of categories, people who become symptomatic or people who may have been exposed and we want to make certain. And as I said, you know, our current testing capacity is, is between five and 6,000 tests per day. Uh, and so if we required a post arrival test here we would consume all of the available testing and Uh, I'm concerned that we wouldn't have tests available uh, when our residents really need it.
0: What do you want to say to the critics out there about the mask mandate?
1: Well, the new mandate is consistent in all counties. Everyone must wear a mask when in public that covers your nose and your mouth. And there are a few uh, exceptions to that. And now they accept exceptions are exactly the same in every single county. So we worked with the mayors. They agreed that it would be preferable that we have exactly the same language in every county, and we do now have exactly the same language in every county.
0: And Governor, I know that uh, we were certainly surprised to learn about the number of cases among the military uh, service members uh, that tested positive,
1: Yeah, certainly that was uh, a surprise to all of us. And, you know, Catherine, I don't get any additional information. So I did uh, learn about that, you know, when the general public did. We have been working uh, with the military. They do believe it's important that specifics about the military are not uh, separated uh, from the general reporting. So we have always reported the cases in our total counts here Uh, in the islands, but we've never explicitly identified those that were um, due to military people and that was the agreement that we had with the military here. They really felt like it would uh, impact their readiness and it would provide information that could be used against the country. So so we do believe that it's important for us and we do include the total counts in the, the numbers that we're reporting we uh we agreed that we wouldn't say you know X let's just say the counts today is a hundred we agreed that we wouldn't say that it's a um, hundred and ten of those are military and 90 percent are um, 90 of the count are civilian so to clarify
0: um, you did not know the specifics that they were from this one ship
1: no we did not know i did not personally know and um you know and we do get the counts Kind of in total.
0: Are you concerned about that?
1: You know, the military in Hawaii is just an important part of our community. So, like every other cluster, a large cluster, I'm uh, always concerned about that. Uh, always concerned that we can uh, identify those who are infected as quickly as possible and then isolate them so that they don't infect others. And so, from that perspective, You know, we don't and we're not involved in contact tracing or isolation of military personnel. You know, they are doing that. Um, They do report the test results, and then we report it in total to the public.
0: I was talking to a HGA member the other day, and they're a little anxious because, you know, we've seen the numbers on on our budget shortfalls, both on the county levels and, and on the state level. And they're worried about the furloughs. I mean, it's a tough decision, but is there anything you can share with us as to where we're at?
1: We definitely are concerned. And the reality is that the revenue coming into the state is about forecasted at $6.6 uh, $6 billion. And the general fund cost to run state government is at $8 billion. And that you know $1.4 billion shortfall we see in the forecast Uh, continuing for uh, you know five or six years so you know i am definitely concerned we are uh, doing uh, everything that we can to uh, try to manage that but um, Catherine, as you know um, the largest part and largest cost in state government is personnel costs it's you know the salaries and benefits uh, the contributions to the retirement system, of that $8 billion, 60% of that cost is directly related to personnel, either salary, benefits, or retirement. And so managing through this budget crisis will be very difficult. And um, you know, we are working to minimize the impact on uh, employees but there are not very many places for us to get the savings that we need to have in order to balance our budget.
0: I think everybody was anticipating some news in November, and next week is Thanksgiving. Uh, so there isn't much left of the month. Any idea when we'll hear more? Are you going to maybe make some announcement, what, in December then?
1: Certainly, we're, we're kind of working through the financial plan. We are negotiating with representatives of the collective bargaining uh, units. You know, Catherine, I uh, did authorize and we were uh, in the market to borrow, to to make a working capital loan to help us through this budget crisis. And we just closed on that uh, a week or so ago. So that provides us a, a little bit of flexibility, but certainly it's not sufficient to really get completely out of this budget crisis.
0: Will you know more next week, or will you make some kind of announcement that first week of December?
1: We're kind of working uh, through that. Uh, We are uh, negotiating with the union. I think as we can make progress, we, we will, and we'll make an appropriate announcement.
0: And as we're going into the Thanksgiving holiday, I guess, Governor, what are you most thankful for
1: I am really most thankful for the sacrifices that um, we have uh, all seen um, that all of the people of Hawaii have made uh, to get us through this COVID crisis to this point. You know, Hawaii is the lowest uh, rate of infection in the country again. And it is because of all of the sacrifices that everyone in our community has made. I think the thing about Hawaii is that we do come together during emergencies and crisis. And clearly, the overwhelming majority of our community understand that what they do impacts their neighbors and their friends. And they have done the right thing. They've worn their masks. They've limited uh, interactions with uh, others, and they continue to wash their hands and use hand sanitizer. And I'm really thankful for that. You know, I'm proud of the way that the community has responded. It has been an all-of-community effort. Uh, Everyone has stepped up to the challenge, you know, helped their neighbors when they um, could. They provided um, food support for those who um, are unable and have been very supportive of all of our efforts to really support others in our community in need. So I'm really thankful for the way that all of Hawaii has responded to this COVID-19 crisis.
0: That was Governor David Ige talking with us this morning about the tweaks to the safe travel program and the anticipated furloughs of government employees. And now it's time to turn to the BBC to give us views from abroad on the ongoing controversy surrounding the results of the U.S. presidential election.
2: From the BBC in London, I'm Audrey Tinlin with Global View on 2020, a look at how the media in Israel and Iran have been discussing the US presidential transition. Coming up, what Iran is saying about the prospects of a return to the nuclear deal under the Biden administration. But first... Israeli media covered this week's visit from Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, becoming the first American in that position to visit an Israeli settlement in occupied Palestinian territory. This reporter for Israel's public broadcaster ended her piece by saying, we may meet him again in another four years, this time as a presidential candidate. Joe Greenberg follows media in Israel and the rest of the Middle East from our BBC monitoring office in Jerusalem. He told me Israeli media have been quick to pick up on Prime Minister Netanyahu's phone call this week with President-elect Biden, which was described as a warm conversation.
3: Well, there is one paper uh, in Israel that is very pro-Netanyahu. It's a free paper and it's actually funded by a supporter of the Prime Minister. Their line has been that Netanyahu will not be afraid to stand up to Biden if there will be differences of opinion, for example, on Iran or on policies uh, toward the Palestinians. Um, Other papers, which are centrist uh, or more liberal, are taking the view that Netanyahu will will encounter some flack. He'll have to. uh, Be careful and um, his relationship with Biden will not be one where everything he proposes or the policies that he prefers will get an automatic uh, American backing. On the contrary, uh, Biden may try to uh, restrain or rein him in on certain issues like settlement, and he may pursue a, a new deal with Iran that Netanyahu will not be happy with.
2: Mr. Biden was part of the team that created the 2015 Iran agreement, and it's been indicated that he might bring the US back to that again. So how's that been seen in the region and particularly in the Israeli media?
3: Well, again, um, a commentator in the paper, again, that I mentioned earlier that supports Netanyahu was worried that... um, a renegotiation of the agreement with Iran may not cover issues that Israel is concerned about. For example, the Iranian development of ballistic missiles, uh, Iranian support for proxy organizations, for various groups in the Middle East uh, that are aligned with Iran. That Biden will not make a point of including these in any future deal. In other words, that that activity will have to be uh, limited, restrained, restricted, or halted. Um, and so there is concern about that. By the way, not only in the pro-Netanyahu media, but also in more independent, centrist Israeli newspapers and websites, commentators have been asking whether Biden's intention to return to negotiations, will it produce an agreement that will meet the concerns of the Israelis that go beyond the nuclear program?
2: Joel Greenberg with BBC Monitoring, speaking to me from Jerusalem. Media in Iran have also been discussing a possible restart to the nuclear deal under a Biden administration. Iran has a state-run English-language news outlet called Press TV. They ran an interview with a government spokesperson. Here's his response to whether Iran will trust the Biden administration on the nuclear deal.
4: The issue is not
1: trust. Uh, actually, the JCPOA, Iran's nuclear agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was negotiated based on mutual mistrust and not trust. So uh, here these ma- matter most
4: and we are just looking into the behaviours of the who is going to run the White House.
2: That's what some of the world's media have been saying about the future Biden administration this week. I'm Audrey Tinlan at the BBC.
5: Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, locations, and Honolulu Waldorf School. The news and music you hear on HPR are helped made possible by nearly 200 local organizations, reaching you with their message and making a difference every day.
4: Mahalo to the Aloha International Piano Festival. Gourmet Events Hawaii, and Mid-Pacific Institute. They believe, just as you do, in the power of public
5: radio. See a full list of our underwriters at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, dedicated to the idea that everyone should have a decent place to live and committed to bringing people together to build homes. Honoluluhabitat.org.
0: This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz.
6: Unihua, <laughs>
0: Today, we look back at Hawaii's aviation history. On August 16, 1927, eight fixed wing planes left Oakland, California, destined for the Hawaiian Islands. They were competing in the Dole Air Derby for $25,000 and $10,000 cash prizes. A total of 18 planes entered the race, but only 11 passed safety inspections and were cleared to fly. Three of those planes crashed before the race, three people died. That left eight planes in the race, but two of them crashed during takeoff. Two others disappeared over the Pacific Ocean during their flight. Mechanical problems forced two other planes to return to the Oakland Airport shortly after takeoff. In total, before, during, and after the dual air race, 10 lives and six planes were lost. For today's backyard quiz, can you tell us the names of the two teams of pilots and their planes that did complete the race? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. You know, this morning on my way into work, it was drizzling, and I passed two homeless men sleeping on the sidewalk, one on a mattress getting wet, another with his jacket over his head to try and keep dry. Such is a life on the streets. And this morning, HPR's Noe Tanigawa joins us to talk about the plight of the homeless. Good morning, Noe. Good morning, Catherine. Precisely, an umbrella is a key,
7: key tool on the street. I know that. You know, this is exactly it. We're heading into rainy season here, and if you're like the 1,000 people who were at the State Homeless Awareness Conference this past week, you are thinking hard about the people who are in that rain. You know, um, This is Homeless Awareness Month. Um, you may have noticed a lot of towers purple in tribute to that. So let's just jump right in here to the conference. Um, State Homeless Coordinator Scott Moishigate is looking at the 2008-09 recession for indications of how this economic crisis might play out. Okay, what we saw is a gradual increase, a 37% increase in homeless between 2009 and 2016.
4: We know that we can expect a similar increase on a much larger scale as a result of the current economic challenges that our state is facing due to the pandemic. And similar to the last increase in homelessness that we saw following the 2009 recession, the increase in homelessness is likely to occur over a gradual period of time. I know that this outlook sounds pretty grim, but we also know that homelessness has been decreasing overall by 18% over the past four years between 2016 and January 2020. That downward trend occurred primarily because we had increases in housing focused programs like Housing First and Rapid Rehousing as well as really increased coordination among all partners, both in government, the nonprofit sector, as well as community volunteers. So if we can figure out how to maintain and increase coordination, as well as bring some of our housing programs to scale, I think the bright spot is that it really is possible for us to mitigate the rates of increase in homelessness moving forward and to bring those numbers down again. That's
7: the plan. Increase coordination between partners and, you know, bring housing programs to scale. So let's look at the partners providing services into that first. Last month, a deeper dive into Oahu's point-in-time homeless count numbers was released, and the study's called Unsheltered in Honolulu. The authors were Anna Pruitt and Jack um, uh, Barley. It's available on the city website, by the way. The study appears to show that service providers are quite effective. I talked to service providers. They found permanent housing for hundreds of people even during the pandemic. Listen to this closely because Pruitt and Bereal are sharing something that's a little hard to
4: believe.
6: Of the folks who have been connected to services that have been in the system, most of them were not repeaters, meaning they were only counted in one point-in-time count. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't cycle in and out of homelessness, but I think it does suggest that people who are connected to services are getting housed and they are, are getting the help that they need.
4: There's so just always more people falling into the system, so until they stop the faucet from leaking, it's just new people that are falling into homelessness at a constant rate.
7: Interesting. These researchers document a continual wash of people onto and off the of street, Catherine.
4: You know,
0: why are people becoming homeless? They asked.
7: The primary reason people became homeless was not like one devastating medical bill. It was they couldn't pay the rent. They Mm -hmm. just couldn't find a place they could afford. Affordable housing. Okay, now we're on to that. They did take this up at the homeless conference. So Sandra Fund City Director of Land Management here laid out Honolulu's strategy, our strategy to increase affordable housing inventory and efficiently
8: use city land. What we did was we focused on acquiring vacant buildings that could be turnkey, we would be able to rent immediately, or they were properties that we could renovate for quick inventory and then rent out. So we were not looking for huge development projects of the city. We felt large developments should be with the private sector partnerships but we also looked at smaller projects in the community we wanted to integrate our affordable housing and low-income housing into communities for well-balanced improvements to the community we had preferences for projects near the rail stations as rail matures we see that in other cities land values around the rail stations increase tremendously and so in order to be sure that we can preserve a well-balanced community, we wanted to acquire key pieces of property that are near the rail stations and preserve them for affordable rentals. I
7: mean, well, that's what you want to know, right? Has the city been thinking about all the options and how to preserve any gains into the future? Fund gave examples of their efforts. Okay, Modular housing, tawhale, or separate units with shared facilities like Hale-Maliola. All the way to like Verona Village in Eva, where former Wahoo sugar mill workers are going to be accommodated. Uh, solutions range from like 10 families in McCully uh, to Westlock Family Housing. It's going to be 123 units on 3.7 acres there, right at Renton and Fort Weaver Roads. I mean, Fund outlined 11 city projects over the last five years. We had an existing inventory of 1,180 affordable units. This is how many were added. 1472 were added in the last 5 years. Hmm. There are more on the books. But Partners in Care executive director said the latest number she's seen show Oahu's needs 20,000 units now. And she expects that number to grow as landlords maybe go out of business.
0: Yeah, I mean I think that's the fear, right? Uh, people are wondering if this is going to get worse. Uh, well, I gotta tell
7: you, um, Shige admitted this could look grim. So, to close the conference, they invited a writer, thinker, homeless services worker from Canada who's apparently really familiar with Hawaii's situation. Ian DeYoung is the president and
9: CEO of Org Code Consulting. If you could start all over again in the design of the homeless response system, what would you do differently? I know what I would do differently. I would predominantly do two things differently. And number one, I would reverse engineer it. So the starting point of our workflow was a person who was homeless that achieved housing, then work backwards. Number two, I would design it from the perspective of the end user, not from the perspective of the policymaker or funder or service provider. There are remarkably dedicated nonprofits and public servants and elected officials. What if we leveraged the excellence of everyone in this pursuit. Now is actually a time to be thinking through not just nipping at the margins, but big moves in the space of homeless services. Because the future isn't what it used to be. Historically, we think of policy informing procedure, which informs practice, which impacts people. What if we redesign to say people need to impact practice that impacts procedure, that impacts policy? Now's the time to be bold. It's time to vision from a place of strengths rather than deficits. Now is the time to focus on the simple solutions. Simple, not easy.
0: Yeah, there's not going to be an easy solution there, is there?
7: Oh boy. There's nothing. But he says
0: start with the simple things. Get a
7: bandage on that foot. Find a bathroom. Get an ID. Get food stamps and disability. And that's the way relationships build up.
0: Right. Okay. Hmm. And then got to get those homeless guys some uh, something over their heads. Get them umbrellas. Thanks so mm-hmm. much, Noe. Hey, thank you, Catherine. Happy Aloha Friday. All right. Aloha Friday. That was HPR's Noe Taniga talking about the efforts to help the homeless as we try and ride out this pandemic. Honolulu Civil Beat's reality check today is about the looming shortfall in the city budget. It was a bombshell dropped at a city council meeting earlier this week. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi there.
10: Hey, Catherine. Good to be back.
0: So you've got a story uh, by Christina Jedra.
10: Yeah, and she deservedly is taking the day off. Good for her. She's been doing (laughs) a lot of... A lot of terrific work, and and this story uh, is a sobering report. You know, we we did hear earlier on in the week about this huge budget hole, four hundred million dollars. This is for the city and county of Honolulu. That's a three billion dollar budget total, right? So that's thirteen percent. That is an enormous amount of money. Uh, so what are we going to cut? What are we going to do? The city has been adamant about wanting to avoid furloughs, avoiding layoffs and pay cuts if it can. So what Christina did is she through a records request, um, got a spreadsheet from the city and took a, a look at where the money's going and, and possibly what might have to be cut. And as the city has said, everything is on the table. Um, they were already looking at 5 to 10% operating budget cuts for all the departments. And this is, by the way, for the current fiscal year, the one that ex- ends uh, next June. Uh, and why is this happening? Well, it's, it's short and sweet of it is uh, the impact of COVID on the revenues coming in into the city and county.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, going through that article, wow. It's like lots of things, everything from postage. Yeah, yeah.
10: <laughs> it, it's rather overwhelming. I mean, I, I interrupted you for a moment, but let me just name a couple things, uh, things that you may not think about, things that may seem fairly minor, fairly uh, insignificant, and yet money is paid for them. So what about uh, lighting uh, the torches at Kuhio Beach, right, in Waikiki? Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Uh, That ceremony is wonderful, but that costs money, that's gas. What about feeding the animals in the zoo? That is a concern as well. What if you can't provide, yeah, fertilizer for golf courses, right? So you're going to have a lot of dry greens. Christina tried to get more details on specifically where the revenue loss is coming from. The city said it couldn't provide that yet. They're still waiting for... um assessment on real property values, as you know, that's the largest revenue source, property taxes. But we did learn that there was a, a $40 million drop in the hotel tax, not insignificant. And then, this was, kind of took me by surprise, but when you think about it, it makes sense. I mentioned golfing. I mentioned the zoo. Well, there's fewer people doing that, so that means less money going to the city and county. And then this one, fuel taxes, we've actually have been driving less, a lot less Uh, Since COVID came to town. And of course, that means a cut uh, in that tax revenue that goes to the city.
0: Right. And, and, you know, you think about, OK, Parks Department, they're going to, you know, maybe not prune the trees so much. You know, you worry about things like repaving roads.
10: Yes, it could be that we're going to have some bumpier roads going forward. What about this? What if you have uh, illegal dumping in your neighborhood and you report that to the the city? Well, they may not be able to move as quickly as they'd like to. Uh, We can tell you that the police department says, you know, because HPD is included in this, too, uh, that they in no way want to jeopardize public safety. But they may have to back off and some of their investigating, even things like taking their police dogs to the veterinarians for a checkup. I laugh. And Uh-oh. yet that is an example of, of money that's adding up. And then more seriously, uh, to build on your earlier report with no- uh, Noe, um, uh, initiatives on homelessness. There's going to be less money for that. And climate change, very serious pressing issues.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And you worry that uh, that yeah, we're just going to have to cut back on city services.
10: Tell you where this goes next is, you know, Caldwell Mayor Caldwell is out of office January 2nd. He will be making some decisions before then. This does not require the city council approval because this is the existing city budget. But, you know, it's Rick Blangiardi in his budget starting in March where he's really probably going to have to make some very tough calls going forward. So, uh, welcome aboard, Mayor Electric Plangiarty. you got a, a full plate of budget cuts awaiting you.
0: Yeah, very tough. Uh, yeah, Happy New Year. All right, Thanks so much, uh, Chad. Appreciate your uh, help on this.
10: Thanks, Catherine.
0: That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. To read Christina Jeddra's story, visit civilbeat.org.
5: Support for H.P.R. comes from Alexander and Baldwin, serving the islands for 150 years through job creation and civic support, A and B, building partnerships in Hawai'i with a commitment to respect Hawai'i's communities, people, cultures, and environment. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hello, I'm Jordan Gruber, co-authored with Dr. Jim Fadiman of Your Symphony of Cells, and next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about the reality of the many cells inside us. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, whose contributors help Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to the St. Andrews Schools, which includes the Priory School for Girls, the Prep for Boys, and Queen Emma Preschool.
0: The Hawaii Farm Bureau was a bit nervous as it reopened its market at Kapi'olani Community College last Saturday. Often referred to as the granddaddy of our farmer's markets, it drew some 2,000 people every Saturday. But that's not what you want to see during a pandemic. Brian Miyamoto is the executive director of the Farm Bureau. He was on hand as the market reopened for the first time after an eight-month shutdown.
6: We're asking everybody to hand sanitize as you come in. We have two entrances. We've got hand sanitizers at the entrance. Mass are required at all times. Again, if you're sick, please stay home. As much as we want you to come and support our farmers and ranchers, if you are sick, you know, we're gonna ask you, you know, get better and come back when you feel better. Uh, again, the masks need to be on at all times. We've got signs reminding people about all the CDC guidelines. We ask that you physical distance. It is a grab and go market. So unlike before, we're, we're not allowing consumption and drinking on site. We ask you to take it back home and enjoy it uh, and at your home. So come buy, buy your fresh produce, your fresh plants, uh, your fresh value added and food produced items that use local ingredients and uh you know come in and come out Uh, right now again we're we're trying to maintain uh the cdc guidelines and kind of keep the the virus you know down so that we can we can reopen more
0: so what was it like this morning uh before you uh opened up the gates
6: real good we had a couple of customers that came very early in the morning they stayed in their cars Uh, as people were lining up i did an excellent job uh, maintaining the six feet. Uh, distance while they are waiting in line, came in, everybody hand sanitized and in fact we gave everybody an individual, the the first couple of hundred folks an individual hand sanitizer also. vendors have their hand sanitizers. As I walk around you can see people social distance. We use chalk instead of tape on the ground to to distance up that six feet as you're standing in line. We limit the amount of customers that come into any particular booth, uh, usually two at a time. Uh, So again, so that they're social distance. So you know, excitement. We got a lot of thank yous. A lot of oh, I'm glad you guys finally reopened. Staff did an amazing job. Our general manager Megan deserves all the credit. Her and her team really put a lot of effort into this.
0: Can you give us a sense of numbers? What we were operating at pre-COVID and the snapshot today?
6: You know, pre-COVID um, during the I guess the heyday of the market, which probably be 07, 08, 09. The last official survey we did, I think it was upwards of about 7,000 people on a Saturday. Right now, we might, you know, when we first opened, it was in the hundreds that we had here. As people leave and those come in, and again, we were counting everybody coming in, we've got clickers. In the hundreds, early on, we may end up with a thousand, two thousand or so. We're going to figure out the final numbers. See very little visitors here. It's it's our locals, and that's kind of what we were looking at with reopening KCC, kind of uh, getting back to our roots, so to speak.
0: And one of the vendors who is deep rooted in the KCC Saturday market is a small businessman from Kailua. He goes by Andy. His Bueno Salsa was launched at this market and he was so happy to greet customers
11: again. I'm just pleasantly surprised that the local people have stood up and come back to this market. I was skeptical without the tourists driving as it did before that that we have people but they are definitely here and and appreciative and
0: you're you're here but I know you know I I buy your products in the supermarket
11: (laughs) Sure.
0: but you still come out to the farmers market
11: I do it I and I do it because I don't want people to forget me if you'll see this banner it states that I'm an original vendor from 2003 and I built my business at this farmers market these people all of these retail stores came to me here and asked for me to be in their stores so it's super important for me to keep my face in front of the public let them know that Andy's here he's not just a baby picture on a label in a retail store
0: right so well they find you it's Safeway down to earth tomorrow's times Whole Foods who then market
11: in Kailua yeah
0: but you're here back where your roots are i guess this huh? is
11: the roots yeah. this is where all the managers came from all these stores to ask me to be in their store wow. so i built my company on on this market and other farmers markets with the hawaii farm bureau federation well
0: they were impressed with the turnout <laughs> they didn't expect the lines i guess in this no. line.
11: <gasps> i was surprised yeah thank you to the state of hawaii for making my salsa one of their favorites i I am blessed and grateful with people holding on to it and insisting on having it with themselves and their families.
0: That was Andy of Bueno Salsa welcoming residents back to the KCC market. We also caught up with two farmers market fans, Casey and Kelly, who were eager to see the farmers that they have come to know over the years. It's
8: the best. They haven't got everybody out there yet, but next time I'm sure it will be, and people are. The most important thing is they're telling people, don't eat over there, and they're reminding people, step away. So it feels like everybody's got their mask on.
6: And we got a bunch of
8: fruits and vegetables. And flowers. And flowers, yeah. You feel like you're supporting community? Happy about that.
0: And a hint for market goers, the lines were longer and the crowds were heavier early in the morning, so you may want to go later to keep your distance and stay safe. Earlier today, we revisited the tragic Dole Air Race of 1927, the first aviation competition of its kind from the mainland U.S. to the Hawaiian Islands. The race was inspired by Charles Lindbergh's first solo transatlantic flight just a few months earlier. Daring pilots were enticed to enter by the promise of a hefty cash prize offered by James Drummond Dole, president of the Hawaiian Pineapple Company. Unfortunately, not all the planes or pilots survived the adventure. Ten people lost their lives. So who did complete the race to win lots of money and aviation glory? Uh, First place went to Art Goebel with his navigator, William Davis. They landed their plane, the Wooler Rock, in Honolulu after 26 hours and 17 minutes in flight. The only other plane to complete the trip was the Aloha piloted by Martin Jensen and his navigator, Paul uh, Schluter. Uh, They landed after a 28-hour and 16-minute flight. When the winners returned home, they were respectively $25,000 and $10,000 richer. That was today's quiz. We had no winners today. But if you have an idea for a quiz for us, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org.
5: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting the Ukiyo-e print series Hokusai's Mount Fuji, featuring Great Wave off Kanagawa, on view now through the 29th. HonoluluMuseum.org. On the next Science Friday, President-elect
12: Joe Biden has the most ambitious climate plan of any incoming American president.
13: I mean, the entire Biden climate plan is basically a renewable energy stimulus plan, and I think he went to great lengths to frame it that way.
12: We'll talk about what we can expect and what impact it could have. Plus the iconic Arecibo telescope. Is it on the verge of destruction? All on Science Friday from WNYC Studios.
5: Beginning this afternoon at one. Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu. Chef Mizukami's Thanksgiving Masterpiece Dinner to Go features free-range, non-GMO fresh turkey. Serve six to eight. Online at kahalaresort.com.
0: wind up our series on rice in the islands by looking at rice millers did you know city mill now known as a hardware and home improvement store started out as a rice mill and lumber import business at the turn of the century chung Kun i started the business with a sixty thousand dollar loan you can still see the millstone at its headquarters in evil where the business is run by chung Kun's grandchildren stephen i and carol i may While most rice mills in Hawaii are now historic places, there is one Oahu business that mills rice to order using modern equipment. The Conversations producer Jason Ubai tells us more about the rice factory in Kaka'ako.
13: A 20-pound bag of rice isn't an unusual purchase for most Hawaii residents. Scoop how much you need, wash it twice, measure the water up to your knuckles, or to your personal preference. But where did that rice come from? When was it harvested? When was it milled? These may seem like trivial concerns, but at the rice factory in Honolulu, they source several types of brown rice from Japan and then mill it to your specifications. Take a listen. Yuki Kawamura is the general manager. Selling the just fresh milled rice in stuff啊 so because uh, normally uh supermarket selling the white rice just meal the other places. california rice milled in california and japanese rice milled in japan but we are importing the brown rice and just milling in here after the order uh after got the customer order we uh, milling the rice and just selling to the fresh rice to customers yeah. because uh, just our uh, rice is very fresh The rice factory of Honolulu opened in Kaka'ako in 2016. The retail store has all sorts of kitchen and food products on Japan, but the main attraction is the rice for sale. They usually have about eight varieties. Customers choose the type of rice, then decide on how much they want to milled. From unmilled brown to completely milled white rice and everywhere in between. They can order from two to 15 pounds. Kawamura says freshly milled rice can absorb more water, making moist steamed rice. Mild rice, uh, going down. The just waterproof, so very dry taste, very dry. But fresh meal rice is just moisture. Uh, you, can, you can get just moisture taste and just a good taste. No, not bitter taste. Just fresh and sweet taste. I think. <laughs> okay. Terry Lynch is the executive chef at Maui Brewing Company's four restaurants and uses rice factory in several of its dishes, including poke bowls and its locomoco. I spoke with him prior to the pandemic when the restaurant served the full menu.
12: Well, you know, first off, one of the best things, one of the most fun things about being a chef is just sourcing ingredients and finding better and better ingredients. Because if you start with an incredible ingredient, you really don't have to do that much to it. You've already got the battle pretty much done because you've uh, bought such a great thing. And in Hawaii, we're very focused on local. We're very focused on supporting local businesses and farm-to-table. And we just were lucky enough to stumble across Rice Factory. And I, to be honest, I can't remember how I first heard about them. But when we tried the rice, and we went over went over to meet them. It's, it was truly fantastic. What they do is they bring in specific strains of rice from Japan, and they bring it in unmilled. So basically, the rice is coming in like the rice you buy at home in the grocery store. It's had time to dry, and it gets the uh, outside of the hull becomes dried. They Bring that rice in, unmilled, unshaved, and they shave it for us to the order. So when we order rice, and again, they carry a few different kinds of strains that are just awesome to begin with. They shave it to the order, which takes away the dried exterior and really promotes the perfumey quality of the rice. And what we get is just fantastic rice. Just the base rice is incredible.
13: What dishes do you guys use it with?
12: Uh, we use we have a few different rice dishes that we do. We do uh, a variety of poke. What We do incidentally, we we steam that rice and we take it and fluff it with. Uh, we call it Aloha rice when we get done with it. We fluff it with cilantro, parsley, garlic, and grapeseed oil. And the grapeseed oil, I use that just to kind of uh, lubricate it a bit. I don't want to use olive oil because olive oil is, uh, in general, is too nutty in flavor. Or um, too pronounced in flavor. I don't want to mask the natural flavor of the rice. So we use a grapeseed oil, very light in flavor. And then we take and use that rice. We do um, ahi poke uh, that we serve with a kimchi that we make and with quick pickles that we make, and then the rice and the poke, and every element is just stellar. We do uh, beet poke, which is roasted beets that we present in the same way with the the uh, rice factory rice and... Um, uh, our own kimchi, our own pickles, and we do a loco moco that was, was pretty unique. But really, what really kicks it off is this rice. And the loco moco has um, a local beef that we've added onions and mushrooms, sage, thyme, and and uh, tomato, paco too. And then it has a local egg on it as well. So all this local stuff is on it on the uh, the plate. But again, what really kicks it off and adds more detail to the local element is having Rice Factory there.
13: If someone has never had this rice before, I know it is a bit more expensive. How would you describe it? Why would it's worth purchasing for you guys? Uh, at yeah, the I think price point,
12: I think it's worth purchasing for home too. And I'll just you know, uh, I'll say it it uh, is an endorsement for Rice Factory and for Yuki, the guy that runs the place. Yeah, whoever's listening, if you're close by, you should run down and go check out the shop. It's a cool little shop, and there's a not only rice, but they have uh, really interesting soys and miso and other ingredients as well as cookware and stuff. I mean, he's he's got a cool selection of stuff. The rice itself, it's just, you get more bane for your buck. I mean, it's, it's flavorful on its own. All you got to do is steam it, and it's just, uh, the smell and the flavor and texture is just awesome. And, uh, you know, there's plenty of rice around, but um, there's a big difference to, between going to the store and buying like a sack of jasmine rice that's been there forever and you're not sure how old it is, versus something that just got shaved right before you, you bought it. I mean, literally, if you go down there as a, as a uh, retail consumer, he's going to shave it for you when you order it right in front of you. And uh, it's a pretty amazing process. I mean, it's truly, as, as a cook, let alone a chef, it's mind-blowing what the quality is.
13: The Maui Brewing Company restaurants reopened this week with a limited menu, but Lynch says the Rice Factory rice will be used for dishes again sometime in December. You can find the Rice Factory at Farmer's Markets around Oahu and at its retail store in Kakaako. It's best to order online ahead for pickup. Find links at the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org.
0: And we hope you enjoyed our rice stories this week. Thanks for geeking out with us looking at the rain and revival of rice. We leave you with this throwback to a song about what else? Rice. That is it for this aloha friday you know thanksgiving is right around the corner and we would love if you would share with us what you're thankful for Count your blessings during this economic and health crisis. Call our talk back line and record your thoughts. That's 808-792-8217. You can also email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or tweet us at hi conversation. You can also find us on Instagram at The Conversation HPR. And visit The Conversation page on the HPR website to listen back to our shows. Our program is, is produced by Lillian Song, Harrison Patino, and Jason Ubai. The Backyard Quiz theme written for us by John DeMello and our theme music courtesy of Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation.